Good morning. Class participation. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know me, my name already kind of got dropped by T-Mail. Appreciate that, but I'm Josh, one of the pastors here. More specifically, as he already mentioned, he messed up like my whole intro, bro, because I was going to like introduce myself. And like I feel like he gave all the details away already, you know. Uh, me and my wife, uh, one of the pastors on staff, uh, but uh, more specifically a church planning resident with the AIM. Me and my wife are planting a church in Southeast Austin this January. Uh, and so pray for us in that. Uh, if you want to know more about that, holler at your boy. I got to make that plug. I'm sorry. But uh, today is not for that specifically. Uh, today, most specifically, so we continue our series, uh, EXO, our series on relationships. And today we're going to be talking about marriage. Now, right away, all right, let's all take a deep breath. Single people, chill out. Why? Because we're going to tackle marriage from a bit of a different angle. And if you perk your ears up, you might receive more from this sermon than married people do themselves. And so you, I want to encourage you to stick with me. Now, on to my married people. Don't take what I just said and be like, he's talking to single people. I just know how this goes. You know what I'm saying? No, it goes. I want you to zone in. Uh, I want you to talk. I want you to, to hear what we're talking about today. Uh, to share a little bit about myself, man, I've been married for near four years now to my beautiful wife, Rachel. Uh, we have one little one. Shout out for my wife. I appreciate that. All right. All right. I'm going to let her know she got some love today. All right. Uh, now, we have one little one, one daughter with one on the way, little guy. Uh, and so exciting times. I love being married. I mean, transparently, I've wanted to be married since I, you know, and a dad and all that type of stuff for a long time. So I just enjoy this season. And I love it a lot. And so I'm really honored and humbled to be able to talk about it with you guys today. Now, I do want to start our time to kind of get our mind in the right space. And I want to start with a bit of a story. Uh, the story starts a little weird, but I promise you'll see where we're going in a little bit. Now, raise your hand if you were raised in a house that had a refrigerator with an ice dispenser. Shout out to the people that were not raised with ice dispensers, because I wasn't either. Okay, and so when I got an ice dispenser, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I was like, you want ice? You, I got a limited ice here, dog. It was phenomenal. So you could imagine my deep despair. The day last year, I went to my ice dispenser and was like, mm, and nothing was coming out. You could imagine my deep, my man knows me. All right, so. I, I go and I start looking around. I investigate first. There was a clog in the dispenser. I go start looking around. I find my, my, my knife block. You know, if you're a new, if you've been married, you know that like one of the things you put on your register is that little block that comes with a bunch of knives in it. You know what I mean? I see that thing and I'm like, what is this? I pull something out. It was like freaking King Arthur pulling his sword out of the stone. I pull something out and it's a handle with a long piece of metal. And I'm like, and all of a sudden, all the ice is coming out, right? It fixes it right away because the clog just had to stab it a few times, and ice started pouring out nonstop, actually. And so six months go by, the ice dispenser starts clogging again. I go back, I get the same thing, that, that, that long metal piece, and I start stabbing the ice dispenser again. And sure enough, ice starts, you can tell I take care of my stuff. Um, I start stabbing the ice dispenser again. Ice starts pouring out. Now, what's funny about that is in that six-month period, when I fixed that thing twice, there were multiple times as I was preparing dinner where with a knife, I would be looking down and being like, man, this knife sucks. <laughs> now, some of you guys are laughing because you already know what's up. The thing I pulled out of the knife block, that long piece of metal, was the knife sharpener. All I really had to do for a solution to my knife sucking was just get that thing and go, and my knife would get sharper. 
But I never realized that's what it was for. I used it for something completely different. That's a lot of how we do marriage. Man, marriage is a beautiful thing that has its place and its right, right way of using it and that, that most benefits you. But oftentimes we take it and use it for ways that aren't hurtful or bad. They may even be beneficial to us. But we sometimes can forget to use it for the way that God most intends for us to use it. And that is to advance the mission of glorifying God in our hearts by helping us become better and deeper disciples. And oftentimes we miss that in the midst of trying to use it for the other ways that we deem beneficial, which may even be beneficial. And so what I want to do today is actually just talk about marriage from a little bit of a reverse context. A lot of us have already heard many sermons uh, about marriage from the context of what it means to be married and, and how to communicate and how to love each other and X, Y, and Z. And I think those are beautiful and necessary. In fact, if you want some great sermons, some great material on marriage, we did a series on Ephesians last year. We touched on Ephesians 5, which is like the quintessential marriage passage. Uh, man, feel free to go back and look at that. But what we want to do today is actually be in a place where we think through the more foundational element of what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife, and that is to first be a disciple. Uh, if you don't have the capabilities or you are not living out being a disciple, I want to share right off the bat, spoiler alert, you will have an infinitely hard time being a husband or being a wife. It will be immensely difficult. And so I want to go ahead and dive in. I want to get started. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will give you one. We also have some notes that you can follow along with on uh, the YouVersion app, so you can follow those instructions there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start reading because I want to honor our time today. I'm going to go ahead and dive in. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, um, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and pause there for a second. Um, to get a little background on what's happening here. We're jumping into a, a rather kind of a big love fest from Paul. That's because the letter Philippians, right, this letter written from Paul to the Philippian church was written while he was in prison in what we believe is Rome. Okay, so Paul finds himself imprisoned. And the, the Philippian church, hearing of his imprisonment, gets basically a care package together, hollers at this guy named Epaphroditus, and sends Epaphroditus to Rome to deliver a care package to Paul. And on that visit, Epaphroditus says, yo, there's a couple little, little quarrels and stuff going on in Philippi. But overall, the church is not doing that bad. The church is doing fairly well. I'm sure that was a big encouragement to Paul because Paul was actually the one that started the Philippian church through his own missionary endeavors. We can read about that in Acts, but I'm going to let you read about that on your own. Like I said, want to get y'all out of here at a decent hour. Uh, and we have another service. Uh, so what we're looking at is Paul receiving this information, okay, and he, he gets the care package as well. And Paul busts out his notepad and starts penning a letter to the Philippian church. 
And this letter is structured actually really similar to a lot of Paul's other letters. It starts with a bit of a, a greeting, something that goes like, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's in chapter one, and that's in verse one. That's kind of how all of them start. And then it goes into the next portion, which is fairly common as well, saying, man, I thank God for you. But what's different is that this is unique in almost all of Paul's letters because there's something much deeper that goes on here in, in this Thanksgiving portion. In, in, in almost all of them, it's rather short, it's rather sweet. Some of the same language is used, but, but in this one, it, it, for some reason, it's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more detailed. It's a little deeper. And what's actually funny is that we get to read this in English and be like, oh, yeah, this all makes sense. But almost unanimously, it's understood by translators that this is one of the hardest portions of Paul's writings to, to translate. Not because it has some big theological idea, not because it has some complex sentence structure. Honestly, it's because my man screwed up the letter a lot. Like, like when he was writing, he started putting words in places that were kind of weird and kind of hard to understand and started putting like, like and, and it's almost, almost unanimously understood that, that it was like that because as Paul started pinning this Thanksgiving to this specific church, he was more than likely so overwhelmed with affection toward them, so overwhelmed with, with, with passion and love for them that, that he started just messing up what he was doing. Maybe he was orating to another person and they were writing down what he was saying and Paul was just stammering. He was so filled with this affection. I think about when I proposed to my wife, most of you guys that know me know I'm not really like, I don't get very nervous about a lot of things. I'm pretty even keel. Uh, even like it's, I oftentimes when I ask, like, do you get nervous when you preach? And I'm like, not really. I don't really feel that. But yo, when I, tr when I like proposed to my wife, I went from like fairly decently worded to blabbering idiot in the snap of a finger. It was like the fastest thing. I was looking at this woman who had spent the last two years like, like spending and sharing her life with me. And, and I with her. And I was about to ask this woman that I love, like, yo, will you do this for, I mean, as long as we're alive? I, like, it was, it was an overwhelming moment of passion and, and, and love and affection. And I just turned into a blabbering idiot. Paul is having this moment of, like, deep affection for these people, deep passion for these people. And in all honesty, he kind of just turns into a bit of a blabbering idiot. Man, but, but, but the, the reality, the question then becomes, man, what, what is happening here then? What's fueling the passion? What's fueling the affection that Paul actually has? And despite all of the, the literary, you know, kind of miscues that Paul has in terms of, like, like just his emotions and maybe some of the, the miswordings that happen here and there. Like, like he does something really cool in, in, in this chunk of text to really show us what the point is. Now, if you go to that next one, it, it has like a bit of a structure. This is, this is called a chiasm. Now, you don't need to know that word. You can throw that away. But really what it's saying is that it makes like a ladder of a point. A ladder in the sense that there's matching points made up until we get to the peak point that's the main emphasis of the entire thing and Paul he writes right away in verse 3 man I thank God in all my remembrance of you I, I, every time I even think about you when I forget and I remember the first thing that comes back to me is is the immense care you've given me and I pray for you every single time with deep joy because of your partnership in the gospel now I want to stop here for a second and I want to show you that that this A and B point match when we go down the closing points. That man, and when he ends that section in verse 8, there's this part that says, man, I, God is my witness. I yearn for you with the, with the passion of Christ. 
Why? Because I have the right to feel the way I feel about you because of your partnership in the gospel. See that, that all of these are leading into one climactic point that he wants to make and that he wants them to understand. The origin of his affection for them is rooted in this reality, that he's convinced that the God who started the work in their lives is going to finish the work in their lives. He sees them and goes, man, you, I have such strong assurance that you are a disciple of Jesus, that you have submitted yourself to the Lord in a way that does not make you perfect, but in a way that continuously clings to this Jesus and says, man, I will submit my mind, my heart, my affections, my feelings to this God in a way that I am deeply confident he will continue to renew your mind, continue to renew your heart, continue to renew your life in a way that makes you look increasingly like him until the day comes when you enter into glory with him through the faith that you had in him and you join him and he perfects you. And his idea, Paul's passions, are like, yo, and for that reason, I'm crazy about you. For that reason, I love you. Man, I, I want you to see, that I, I'm, I don't want to belabor this point. I'm trying to keep track of my time here. But, but notice that it's not Paul's love that draws their godliness. It's not his love that, that starts the problem that says, man, I'm going to make you more godly now. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because their godliness is so intact, because their affections for Christ are so there, because their minds and lives are so submitted to the Lord that begins to build out this reality that they now partner with Paul in the gospel, and now he is so immensely filled with love and affection for them. Man, in your marriage, man, you don't... Okay, you know what? Before we go there, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that oftentimes, quite often, we take the idea when we get married, that our priorities and responsibilities now shift into being a husband and being a wife, that we tend to let go of the primary identity we should have for ourselves and the primary identity we should have for our spouse, and that primary identity being that they are a disciple, affectionately cared for, they're affectionately saved, redeemed by the God of the universe. And when that exchange happens, we begin to do exactly what I did with the knife sharpener and start to try to use our marriage, try to use our role as a husband, try to use our role as a wife, as a spouse, in order to accomplish things that may be beneficial but are never the intention of what that's for. Now, right here, you can see that, man, like, like just thinking about this, like thinking about this structure right here, man, some of us even hearing and thinking about the reality of like viewing your wife more as a disciple of Jesus than as your wife, are like, man, but what about the romance? Look at my man is sitting there saying, I'm yearning for you. What more romantic word is there than yearn? I, I, want, I want you to show me a man that looks at his wife and is like, baby, I yearn for you. Let's, come on, fam. That's good stuff right there. All because they're godly. All because they love Jesus. All because he recognizes that Jesus is so deeply foundational in their lives that it's producing passion. Man, man this is immensely important that we see this. That there is a godliness in one another, that there is a, there's a discipleship, a devotion to the Lord that fuels affection when we can get our mind wrapped around the fact that our life is now different because our life is now changed in the gospel and in the redemption that Christ offers. And I, I love, 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 love 
the way uh, Francis Chan, an author and pastor uh, in San Francisco, puts it. He says this, um, the goal is undivided devotion to the Lord. Meditate on those words. Remember that the Bible is not a book about marriage. It is a book about God. The best thing we can do with our brief lives is to vote ourselves to him and his mission. This is the goal. And marriage can actually help us achieve this goal. That's why Paul encourages marriage for those who are tempted sexually. A healthy marriage helps to prevent temptations that would destroy our effectiveness. But remember that the goal is to be completely devoted to God. Marriage can be used as a means of improving our devotion to Jesus. Let's not get it backwards and think of him as the means of improving our marriages. So right away, right away, we dive as we look into the, the, the act of discipleship, the camaraderie, the unity that binds uh, a community of faith together in Christ. And we recognize that this whole thing, everybody in here, whether you are sitting next to a complete stranger, whether you are sitting next to a friend, whether you are sitting next to a spouse, has the specific role in your life of pushing you toward Jesus and you, you doing reciprocating that role in their life. That, 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 is the, that is the main goal here. That, that is it. Devotion to Christ. That's not minimizing marriage. That's simply putting it in its correct place. And, and let me be honest with you, man. Like some of us, real transparent, like this makes us a little bit sad. Like, like there's a reality in here when we start to, to, to kind of sift through that like, yo, I'm, I'm not going to be joined. Let me just be, make it really personal here. I'm not going to be joined to my wife Rachel in eternity as her husband. Now, now hear that. I'm not going to be joined to my wife in eternity as her husband. Now, I'm going to turn it outwards. If you are married in here, and if you get married in here, you are not going to be tied to your wife or your husband as a wife and husband in eternity. In Matthew 22, someone poses the question and goes, hey, Jesus, um, a woman has different husbands during the course of her life here on earth. Whose husband is she in heaven? And Jesus looks back and he's like, man, you're mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Man, marriage, let, let, me, let me put this as affectionate as possible here. Marriage guys, is a momentary thing. And I'm not trying to devalue marriage. Hear me. I'm trying to make marriage accurately understood for us. Marriage is a momentary thing. It's, it's something that takes place in the middle of, of, of our lives, most likely. And maybe one of the spouse passes, and then literally, this text goes on to say, actually, Paul in Romans goes on to say, and, and after one passes, no longer is the spouse committed or tied to the person in marriage. It is a momentary thing. But that doesn't mean that we should despair when we look at our wives, when we look at our husbands, when we look at our spouses, because that does not mean we won't be tied to them for eternity. Because we will be. We will be. You will be tied to your spouse for all of eternity, but it will not be as a husband and it will not be as a wife. You will be united together with your spouse for eternity as a precious, cherished, saved, redeemed, loved child of God. 
you will be eternally bound along with all of your friends that are in the faith, along with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, together, uniformly making this bride that we no longer need a wife or need a husband because we are corporately together experiencing the beauty of marriage perfected as we live out the joy of being in relationship with our perfect husband, Christ, forever. And in that moment, there won't be a, a thought that, uh, that pops into your heart and pops in your mind that looks at your husband or looks at your wife and goes, man, I wish I could be more with them. Because you'll simply look at Christ and go, I have everything I need right there. That's how you will be tied to your spouse for eternity. Tied by what you were before being married, what you are during your marriage, and what you are after your marriage. And that is as an eternally loved child of God, saved by his grace, purchased by his blood at the cross. That's what ties you together first and foremost. Now let, let me ask a challenging question to us now. Both for, for those that are married, when, when you wake up in the morning, when you look at your wife or think of her during the day, when you consider your husband, is that the main identification you have toward them? I mean, before you think through what their role is as a wife, before you think the role as a husband or a parent or as a, 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 a co-worker in the house, right, taking care of the house, um, before you, you think of them in that way at all, is the first way you perceive them, first and foremost, that they are this valued child of God. Is, is that it? Is that where you start? Because let me be, be quite transparent. It, it will be impossible for you to build a healthy, loving, and caring marriage if that's not the place you begin. Paul, Paul has this idea in verse 7 I just want to take a look at it briefly. In verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, now this, this word, uh, it's actually on the one right before that. I'm sorry. I, uh, I should have made that a slide on its own. But um, it is right for me to feel this way about you. This word feel is, is, is a pretty good understanding of what's being said here, but, but it's a little bit off. What, what Paul is saying, what the word actually is more rooted in is the idea of a thought, but not a fleeting thought. Not like someone walks by and it's like, that's a nice shirt, and then you proceed on with your day thought. It's like an entrenched mindset towards someone. It, it's something that's deeply entrenched, a mindset or a disposition. A, a way we could think about this is no matter how you feel about the president of the United States, deeply entrenched in us, is the mindset that the office of President of the United States demands respect. No matter how you feel, and again, trust me, listen to me here, I'm not making a political, political statement here. What I'm saying is that, man, when you have the understanding of President of the United States, when that man, no matter who is holding that office, steps towards you and you shake his hand, you're not gonna do anything stupid. You know why? Because you're gonna get shot. Why? Because that man is very important. That woman, potentially, right? I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm trying to be very open. I already, like, I said man, I was like, I could, like, see in the corner of my eyes and go, like, and I was like, okay, or woman, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, that person uh, is extremely important, okay? Extremely important. 
In that same way, that's because deeply entrenched is the understanding, the mindset, the, the complete way you look at the person. That's important. It's, 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 a, it's the way you look and view that person. It's a part of how you view the world. Paul is saying in here, man, it is right for me to have a worldview that paints you as having all dignity, all respect, all, all worth, all value paid for you externally to where now how I treat you, how I love you, how I feel about you no longer hinges on what you do. In fact, the worth and dignity you deserve and are worthy of has been completely and wholly purchased by that Jesus, our Lord. By that Jesus, our Lord. Man, man, my complete mindset about you is first and foremost rooted in your discipleship, but in your connection to our Father, in your child, uh, childness, your, 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 your being a son or daughter of the Most High, in the way that it completely informs how I see you, how I love you, how I care for you, everything else. And let me, let me be really transparent here. Man, like, guys, isn't that what you want? Like, think about all the ways you've listened to, to, to marriage sermons, to marriage conferences, books about relationships, the thought of communicating with another person, treating them with respect and love. What if that person looked at you and said, you will never be able to do anything that warrants me, I mean, just trashing you, because you literally have not earned the worthiness you have. It's completely Christ, and therefore I will honor it for all of our days. Like, man, that's beautiful. And, and let me go a step further here. Let me go a step further here. And I want to be really sensitive right now. I want to be really sensitive, because as we've brought this up, as we've talked about this, I want to go ahead and say and put on the record, like, yo, I know that as we're talking about this, there's some of us that are like, man, I don't have that. And I don't mean you're single and don't have it. I mean you are married and don't have it. You have a spouse that has hurt you and utilized your space in marriage to be painful instead of pushing you toward Christ, has been to isolate you and rob from you. I, I want to extend a, a, some words of encouragement that, man, you, you share in that burden with the king of the world. Christ has, has often, often had to describe his church as being lustful, easily turning away, easily abandoning and walking away. Yet because Christ is a disciple first and a husband second, he perfectly pursues a lustful and, and, and unfaithful wife to win her back. And so understanding that you share in that, man, there is, there is hope for you in that Christ, in that he has um, bore the burden that you take on now. But in addition, I, I want to share with you in a much, in a real way, man, right now, if, if you are going and working through the hardships of marriage, which could be a lot of people in here, and obviously there are some some caveats to this, right? If you were getting abused, if you were, um, I mean, have been abandoned, man, I, we want you to have a conversation with us about that. Come share that with people in this community. There's people here that want to walk through that with you. But for 99% of the issues we work through in marriage, 
If you have grown cold and familiar with your wife or with your husband, it is more than likely because you have grown cold and familiar to the reality of how deeply and desperately you need grace every day. And it is likewise that you have grown cold and familiar to the reality of how generously and how graciously Christ has poured out his kindness to you every day. That is more than likely the reality of that coldness, of that hardness. Because to first walk as a disciple means I first and foremost not just see my spouse as a child of God, but it's that when I wake up in the morning, the first mindset I have toward myself is that I am also a child of God. That though I have not warranted or merited the favor and grace that the Lord has given me, he has poured it out to me regardless. That he has given to me grace and mercy that I cannot afford. And that he showers it on me regardless of how I have conducted myself. That is what it means to be the bride of Christ. That's what it means to be his son or his daughter. And when we have that ability to view us like that, it dynamically changes how we are then able to work, love, care for our spouses, our children, our co-workers, even the ones in our lives that don't know the Lord, understanding that we are not removed from them as far as we might think, but we equally are in need of God's grace together, one accepting it, one, one owning it, one embracing it, and one not. And so I want to draw our attention here because man, this reality, this reality of being a disciple first, being a disciple above everything else is the one that builds a foundation for us moving forward. And in a very practical way, let me tell you, it builds, it's a foundation on which we build the most beautiful of marriages. All right, now I want to finish up our text real quick by going to verse 9. After displaying this deep sense of affection and care, because of the discipleship shared between um, the Philippian church and Paul, he goes on to petition the Lord for them, to pray for them. And his prayer is this. And I pray, and it is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, we glance over this and go, yeah, that's like a good prayer. I'm going to pray that for like my neighbor or like my community group leader or X, Y, and Z. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. You got it. The, the point that I'm making in the overall course of today is what if this was your prayer for, like, your spouse? I mean, what if you're getting married, you're standing across from each other, right? And, and the vows you share are like, hey, I vow to always be there to, 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 to increase your love and have it abound more and more every day to work tirelessly to see you grow in knowledge and discernment so that you can make choices that bring you life and never bring you death. 
so that you can be filled with the beauty of Christ's likeness in your life to the praise of God till the day that I die. Y'all, that's what I'm saying, son. All right, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Getting worked up, getting worked up. Man, man, what, what if, what if, like, man, I have all the respect in the world to be like, yo, I want to, like, until my dying day, I'll love and be passionate about you. But, yo, if you can give me this too, if you can build all the lovey-dovey part on this reality, that I will work all of my days to see your love abound and increase and work all of my days to partner with you in seeing your mind grow in knowledge and discernment so that you can live out a life that brings you life eternal and never death to the praise and glory of God, I can know that, man, my life is safe with this person forever and ever and ever. And, and if I can build my expectation that, man, my marriage is going to be built on this reality and what brings me joy, what brings me affection, what brings me care is that, man, they are working for me in this reality. They have my back in this way at all times, and I have their back in this way at all times. And never am I looking at my marriage and expecting something that it was never supposed to give me. I'm never looking at it and going, man, you're not meeting my emotional needs. You're, 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 you're just being a little bit too neglectful of me and the family. You're, and, and trust me, and I want to make a caveat there. There are ways that, men, those are realities, right? There are ways that we can be neglectful as spouses. But there are also ways where we just place expectations on marriage that just aren't realistic. Expectations on marriage that they were never supposed to fulfill. This is what marriage is supposed to be. This comes from a text that's not about marriage, but this is what marriage is supposed to point you towards. Marriage is supposed to give you the tools to become a better disciple, not being a disciple gives you the tools to be a better husband or better spouse. And so when we consider and ponder through that reality, man, man, seek, seek that. Like if you're single right now, man, let, let, me, let me aim something at you. Man, look for this in your spouse. Look, look for these qualities in the people that you're, you're dating, the people that you're pursuing, even in your friendships. Like look for these qualities. And man, when you see someone failing in these areas, lovingly call them upward to this lifestyle. Call them upwards toward devotion to Christ. Don't, don't kind of brush it, brush it off. And man, this is the, the foundation that, that we build relationships on because it builds the beautiful, beautiful life-giving relationship that God intends his disciples to have as he brings us in unity with one another. Man, this right here. And, and this is... He does that because this is the life he lived. This is the life Christ lived. Before Christ is your husband and my husband, before he is the husband to the bride of Christ, his church, he is a disciple. And in fact, it's in his discipleship that the most beautiful aspect of his care and love for us is seen. Because if I take you into one scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where, sorry, we don't let it um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally, right, where Christ is wrestling with his earthly will versus the will of his Father. And he says, man, not my will, but your will be done. It's through that very discipleship that he goes and lays down his life for his bride. You will only function the way you should as a husband or as a wife when you are not first a husband or wife, but when you are first a disciple of Christ. That's it. Today's sermon is, is not, man, I kind of want to add this caveat here. Like, 
if you're hearing me correctly today, it, it's, I'm not trying to give you the solution to every single marriage problem you will ever have. Because let me be really honest, there's that, no sermon's going to do that. We carry in burdens and hurts from living in a broken world, from partaking and being victims of sin. What we're doing today is laying the foundations for which all healing will take place. And that's the reality of, of submitting ourselves to the Lord. And if you're not doing that well right now, man, let me encourage you. Like, there's grace in that. Like, like man, Christ paid the price for us already. Like, like he, he's already made the way for you to be the husband that he desires you to be, for you to be the wife that he desires you to be, because he's already been the husband that you need. It, it's, it's in his sacrifice that we find forgiveness and grace and redemption. Man, if, if, if you are right now feeling the weight of like, yo, I'm not doing this. I don't experience this. I don't, I don't get this. I'm, I'm not doing this. My marriage does not feel this way. I, I don't feel that sense of life and care. Uh, especially spiritually, um, we, we find ourselves more often than anything bogged down by the concerns of life and family and career and building toward our future. And we rarely feel the deep sense of care and affection that comes from this discipleship. Man, family, there's grace to that. There's grace to that. You are a part of a unified family in this room that has been brought together by the blood of Christ to be cared for and loved and secured by him. And so what I would encourage you to do is, man, like, like let's take some practical steps together. Do you want to grow in, in, and kind of re, redo the foundations of your marriage to match and to, to, to align with more discipleship than with husband and wife? And like I said, that, that's not a bad thing. It's saying, hey, to, to return to the foundations that you need to build a beautiful relationship and to build a healthy faith, man, you, you can, there's grace to that. Man, man why, why don't we partner together as a community to help each other see that? That is discipleship, right? Like, you don't, you don't have to be in your marriage and struggling through marriage issues and struggling through marriage problems alone. As a disciple, you now are equipped with a room full of other disciples that you can invite in to encourage, keep you accountable, love on you and your family, display the affection of Christ that you so desperately need to experience and see to take back into your marriage and live out. And so, man, with me this week, right, as we process through the idea of being first a disciple and and, and living out our life as a husband or as a wife through that discipleship, can, can we practically work that out? Can, can this week, can you go to something like a community group and where we're going to talk about marriage and, and, and we're going to talk about this very idea? Can, can you do that and, and walk out what it looks like to start reorienting certain aspects of your life uh, to focus primarily on what it looks like for you and your wife to be disciples? Uh, can, can you even do something really practical, right? Like, like man... What if you and your wife just went to dinner and, and shared your faith with somebody? Not even, you don't have to share your faith. But if you go to the gospel training conversation, you might be able to share your faith. Plug, sorry. Um, just go and, and while you're at dinner, pray with them. Why don't, why don't you introduce a time of reading your word together? Why don't you take time to say, hey, will you go and hang out with other women, other men, appropriately and respectfully, um, that you can read the word with? And it, can, can we come together every day or as often as we can to, to pray with one another, to pray over each other, to ask even being accountable to one another, what areas can I grow in? And, and shedding that feeling of like, hey, as my husband or as my wife, 
like, you know, like, man, I feel like you're, 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 you're doing me dirty. But like when they're actually praying and saying, hey, these are the areas where I think we can grow toward Christ together, having that, that, that fear, just kind of intentionally making space in your mind to say, no, this is, this is my closest confidant in the faith, partnering with me in grace, partnering with me in the gospel to push me toward Christ. Right? These simple acts begin to take our, our, our hearts and our mind and go, hey, we have a mission together. And it's not our, our happiness alone. It's the mission that the Lord gave us as his disciples and as his children. And now we have the opportunity to work together to pursue that. And, and friends, I want to promise you something. Arguments, bitterness, anger, they find their place when you realize that you're working toward eternal goals rather than focusing on momentary outcomes. When you realize that the eternal weight of seeking the godliness, the, the Christ-like character in your life, that, that when you ask to petition the Holy Spirit to change each other's heart and mind together, that you're working together to say, man, how can we together work to push each other toward Jesus? How can we together work to see disciples made? How can we together work to advance the cause of, uh, of the mission God has given us? That man, it becomes a beautiful reality of eternal living rather than momentary uh, obsessions. And in reality, man, if you're single in here, friends, you don't have to wait for that. All the things I said you can do, you can go do with other people. Go live as a disciple. And man, if it's scary in those moments, like ask God. He, he's the one partnering with you right now. Right? Like, like he's the one partnering with you in all moments. As, as husbands and wives, he's the one partnering with us. But, but man, right now, if you don't have a husband or wife, man, that's okay. None of the stuff I just mentioned you have to be married to do. It's all just a part of following and walking out and living out the calling that we've been given in responding to the grace that God's provided to us. And so as, as our church body, can we, can we take a step and, and just work towards some of those things this week? Some, I mean, like, I don't want to be a, a radical, but man, can, can we pray for some people? And I don't mean like take their prayer requests and like go home and like at dinner actually pray for them. Like, can we do that this week together? Zero class participation? All right, okay. Man, and if we do that, and if you, you take your marriage and you begin to center it on that family, I promise, I promise, it won't be the solution to all, but man, it will put in perspective so many things in our marriage. Go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your grace to us. Um, thank you so much that it is in you that we find who we are. And it's in the grace that you give us that we find the value and worth of the, of the children of God that you've partnered and put us together with. Uh, God, I ask that you would allow us, even today, like right now, for our hearts to be captivated by the beauty of Jesus. That right now, as we think about our spouses, we think about our husband, our wife, our family, the way we would first and foremost see them is not through the lens of our family or of our, our marriage, but instead through the lens of your care and affection for them. And that that would fuel and push us toward not being a better husband, but being a better disciple that cares for, cherishes his family the way you have, going so far to lay down your life for us. 
Let us cling when we fail to the reality that we have a greater husband in you. Let us find our hope that we cling to and will eternally be united uh, to those that we love, including our spouses, through the reality that you have laid down your life for us who are bride. And let that drive the hope, courage, and boldness that we need to live out lives that, that love, cherish, and care for those around us, and most specifically today, our spouses. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, family, as